2: Welcome back to the House of Pod. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Kave. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Thanks for coming to listen to this fun little medical podcast. Today, joining me are actual humans. Not just me. Not just me, baby. I have actual humans here joining me to talk. Yes. First, returning fan favorite, Ryan Marino. Dr. Marino. Hey, bud.
1: Hey. How's it going? I'm glad to be back. I'm good. good.
2: It's good to see you. It's good to see you, bud. Good to see you. What does your shirt say? Can I see it? It
1: says, this car touched
2: fentanyl. And it's a cop car on fire. Oh, my God. That's amazing. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) All right. Another returning fan favorite, Dr. Jeremy Faust. Buddy, hello. Can I call you Jeremy? Can I call you Jeremy? I think we've reached that, that phase, yeah. Can I call you Juror? No. Hey, <laughs> how are you doing, buddy? I'm great. How are you? It's good to see you too, man. It's good to see you. I miss you. I like it when you, you come to visit me in San Francisco. I know you're not visiting me, but when you come to San Francisco, it's always a nice little joy when you're here and I get to see you. Absolutely. I, hope, I hope that happens again soon, buddy. And for the first time joining us on the show, we have Dr. Lauren Westerfer. Am I saying it correctly? Westifer.
3: That is correct. Nice to be here.
2: Um, and you are also an emergency room doctor like these two guys are?
3: Yeah. Well, I don't know if I'm like them, but yes, I'm also an, an ER doctor.
4: Yeah. You don't want to be no too. No one serious. is like Lauren Westafer, allow me to say that. <laughs> I'm Jeremy okay. and I'm done speaking.
2: <laughs> know your role, man. Um, Lauren, since it's your first time on the show. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Can you give me the the one-liner for our, our uh, listeners joining us today who haven't heard you before or don't know yet who you are? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Lauren,
0: I
3: use she her pronouns. I'm an ER doc in Western Mass, and there is a slight uh remnant from my uh, my childhood, which was all spent in the South. So don't be confused. This is not a Massachusetts accent uh, and I podcast with Jeremy in my non-existent free time
2: podcast. Nobody listens to those. What are you guys doing? What are you guys <laughs> what are you guys thinking? You guys should be doing YouTube like Ryan, Ryan, uh what's going on with the YouTube channel?
1: um uh, just started it so stay tuned for more if you're interested i don't i don't know what else to say right now where, where can people find it oh youtube slash ryan ryan oh my god i can't wait you, you did the ryan md hmm? you took mm-hmm. you, you stole my idea
2: no one had ever thought of doing their first name md until kave yeah. md it's very <laughs> creative yeah well thank you
4: but uh, so- youtube is the world's second largest search engine you
2: know that Oh, well, no, that makes sense. I actually listen to a lot yeah. of music at work through YouTube, um, which is a real bummer because the commercials are, are really, really bad. And they're always about some super secret bowel cleanse. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't Google or YouTube anything regarding GI stuff, but somehow YouTube knows that I'm like a GI doctor. And it's like constant, like nonsense about like liver detoxes, Colon cleanses, all that stuff, the one thing you're supposed to eat, all that nonsense. Um, Actually,
4: I met Lauren on YouTube, actually. Just kidding. That's really stupid. Nobody would ever meet on YouTube. We actually met on Twitter.
1: Yeah, that's where all the cool kids meet. That's where I met you guys. (laughs) Uh, It's probably the algorithm just recognizing you're watching Andrew Tate videos all day. Well, I do do that. I'm not going to lie. He is tremendously
2: funny. I mean, like if you look at him in the right light. (laughs) <laughs>
1: like... like prison prison lighting.
2: Yeah, exactly. If you just watch every video knowing that he's in prison right now, it makes it a lot more tolerable. <laughs> um, well, I joy, I had you guys come to join me because we're gonna talk about ER stuff. Um, and you guys are all ER doctors, and this has been an interesting week for emergency medicine in general. Um, so I guess we'll get to it, but a big part of that, what makes it interesting is something called Match Day. Match Day. Now, Lauren, can you explain? By the way, I'm sorry. I'm calling you by your first name. I hope that's okay. Okay. Totally fine. She gave me a thumbs up to the listening audience at home. Um, So can you explain to to people who may not know what Match Day is?
3: Yeah, so it's a big celebration, maybe a disappointment, but it's the day where you find out where you are or are not going for residency. And it's really a week. It starts with sort of Monday, you figure out, did you match somewhere or not? And programs figure out, did they match all of their residency slots or not? Uh, And then on the Friday of that week, you figure out where you're going. So for me, I wanted to do emergency medicine. And so on Monday, I got this cruel, kind of cruel email that said, hey, congrats, you've matched. And so I was like, yes, I'm going to be an ER doctor. But for somebody who wants to be a surgeon or an anesthesiologist or a pediatrician, they find out, okay, yes, this is in my future. And some people find out, okay, I did not match. So now I have to figure out how I'm still going to be a doctor. Because for most places, you have to be, go through a residency to get training to really sort of uh, capitalize on that several hundred thousand dollar training that you underwent in medical school to actually practice as a physician. Uh, And so you find out that you're going to do that. And this all goes back to like February, where you rank which programs you want. And so on match day, you find out, okay, uh, I am going to that program. So I ranked uh, Bay State, where I am currently a uh, practicing ER doc as number one on my residency Sort of match list. It was where I wanted to go. And then I ranked like six other places. And then on match day, I found out, okay, that is where I'm going to go. But it's only because they ranked me well enough. Otherwise, I might have gone somewhere else. There's this very complex algorithm. I don't know, has to do with statistics and computers and various algorithms that figure out, are you going? So match day is where you figure out, are you going to be that type of doctor that you wanted to be? Where are you going to go? Where are you going to set up your brand new life? Uh, And then also where programs figure out uh, who they are getting, because it's sort of opaque up until that time.
2: Jeremy, you've, you've talked about Match Day itself. How do you feel it works overall? So match day, I think,
4: again, it's an amazing kind of moment. just catharsis. Uh, This process starts, you know, the medical students apply, and then they get interviews. And then if you got an interview at at a hospital, then you're allowed to rank them. They're allowed to rank you. And then it all goes into this big computer. And then it spits out this, like, match. Um, And I actually think that the system is probably overall the best system that you could imagine uh, for the problem at hand, which is that you have thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, thousands of hospitals, uh, various considerations like it's not like oh we have a hundred people who we accepted and we're going to choose you know and maybe ten will say yes. It's like it would never work like the old fashioned sort of application way. Um, so it sort of spits out one answer, and it's been refined over the years. Back in the day, it was done a little differently. In the '90s, they changed it to be very. Um, it's it's a it actually favors the students in a in a, in a way uh, in the sense that if you actually you know when you give students like the, the, uh, the advice is rank the place you want to go the most, the algorithm will actually favor you. There's like no, like, there's no like, oh, well, that's a reach for me. So I should rank like this place that I know wants me higher, but I'm not as excited about. It's actually great because the algorithm clearly, clearly uh, favors the the, the applicant, the student, which is great. Um, So I think it's a great system. I agree with Lauren, she used the word opaque. Um, the, The opaque part is, you know, that you can, list a place that interviewed you. But from there, it's like you don't really know, like, oh, how high am I on their list? Uh, you're not allowed to tell a place, like you're my number one, or they're not allowed to tell you, like where you stack up. And so you could literally like not know whether you're gonna get in your top rank choice or like not match at all or get your 15th choice until you open that envelope.
2: Yeah, yeah. So Ryan You know, I'm sure our listeners who are in medicine or doctors remember very well their emotions during match day or that week, really, but especially on that day. But can you, looking back all those years ago for you, so many years when you were matching? Very old. Very old. uh, Can you think back to what that was like and tell people who may not remember what, what that experience was like emotionally?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think there are still some criticisms of this whole process and they're, they're probably valid. It's that's way beyond my ability to comprehend kind of computers and statistics and stuff. Um, But yeah, the match day is supposed to be exciting for people. Obviously some people don't, don't match, but. That is a small number. And so match day itself is supposed to be like a celebration. And I mean, I remember my match day experience was the, the whole class gets called into a big auditorium and you get called up to a stage one by one to open an envelope that, that tells you where you matched and where you're going. Um, and so, I mean, I think for most people that that's very exciting and it is kind of a, a fun, cool tradition um, up until this year, maybe.
2: You know, I gotta say, I I I can see it being a very fun tradition. The way I did it was very different. Everyone got their envelopes and just sort of opened them separately. And even that I thought was kind of hard. And and I I really feel for the people who are going through that process, especially if they have to go up on stage and they didn't match maybe where they wanted to, or it wasn't their number one choice. And I, you know, of course, that doesn't even take into account the people who didn't match. So, Jeremy, those those people who don't match what what happens to them what do they what do they do
4: well they they enter this like thing called the soap the supplemental offer and acceptance program kind of like a an organized sort of scramble matching unfilled spots with people who didn't match and then it's kind of a mini match that happens over and over again until the end of the week um and, and that's what happened to them and then and if you don't match there then you're out of luck and you've got to apply next year i was thinking about the the, the whole like public aspect of this and i'll bring this to a memory that i have of, of our own dr lauren Westerfer here um, you know when lauren applied to residency uh, who's one year behind me at, at the time, although she's much, much younger than I am chronologically, you know, but, um, mm-hmm. but in terms of training, she's one year behind me. And I, and, and Lauren was sort of, it was like 2012 or something like that. So, right. Or 13. And so Lauren, 13. 13, 13 yeah. yeah. Her, her match day was like sort of followed on Twitter as like an event because people knew who Lauren was because she had a blog. It sort of was like a Twitter it's uh, kind of kind of known entity rock star you know and so lauren did you feel like pressure like oh my god it's like not just going on stage with an envelope it's like being on twitter with thousands of people wanting to know like where i'm going to residency
3: no it wasn't like that but it's you know people are interested in where you're going and but i was i was actually in epcot there was no ceremony i was i did (laughs) i didn't go to a ceremony in my med school i'd been doing a ways all around so i was actually in line for rides at epcot when (laughs) when I got my emails
2: a little different that's that's the way to do it
4: like I think now like people like you know there's like this performative aspect of like I match the the t-shirt they fill it in and they little little board like that I have my kid like I'm going to pre-k and like there says I'm going to Emory for anesthesia you know like it's very public now and I feel really bad for people who like sort of get to that stage and then like Monday find out like uh uh-oh uh it's not so simple
2: right right I I just want to take a quick moment. If you're listening to this podcast and you didn't match, if you had to scramble for position, or if it wasn't your top spot, um, and you see all these photos online of people celebrating, getting into their their dream location, I want you to know that really at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. You're going to be. I know it sucks. I know. I know how much it sucks. I know how much it hurts. Uh, and I, I know the stress and that feeling of disappointment that you have levied upon yourself because you're a, a medical student and that's what medical students do and what doctors do. But I promise you, you're gonna end up being fantastic at, no matter what you do, where you go, you're gonna have an amazing career if you want and an amazing life if you make it that way. So I'm throwing that out there right now for those people because I, I every time I see someone celebrating going to the number one spot, I'm super happy for them. But there's always a part of my brain that's worried about that other person and seeing it who didn't um Wait, so the Colin,
4: reason yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna admit something on this show that i've never admitted to anyone in my entire life to this exact point because there are people who are like feeling that down place and i want to say this i'm harvard medical school faculty i have like the career i always wanted i did i did not get into medical school the first time i applied i applied mm-hmm. to like 35 schools and got like two interviews and zero acceptances and i thought that my life was over and uh this is just one day you know it's a long
2: road yeah i mean that's that's really great for you to share that because it's hard to beat what you've done now you know it's really amazing so there you go people that's it, it's gonna it's gonna work out if you make it work out and you will because that's how you got this far already um thank you for sharing that uh so the reason i have you guys on right now to to discuss this is because in the the world of emergency medicine i think there's about 3000 spots Available is that correct? As far as you guys know, sounds rightish. Okay, and of that, about 555 spots for the emergency medicine match were left unfilled, which means not enough resident, not enough medical students were applying to those spots. So this is, to my knowledge, the this is definitely the first time I've experienced this. In, in inter- emergency medicine, and it seems like at least in the last fifteen to twenty years, um, emergency medicine has filled usually or generally not this poorly underfilled. I mean, I, I you know uh, am a bit of a product of the '90s, like most of you guys are, and you know grew up after scrub, not scrub, sorry, ER. And I remember ever since that, basically, people have always wanted to go into an emergency medicine. I felt like when I was applying and while I was going through the match, people going into emergency medicine, I'm not an emergency medicine doctor, for those who don't know. And I felt like those spots were coveted. I felt it was a pretty competitive place. So the fact that 555 spots wouldn't fill seems pretty wild to me. So I guess my first question, and I'll leave this open to whoever wants to take it first, what happened? Oh, that's, that's,
3: that's multifactorial. I think you're going to get a different response based on what your bent is. So some people, there was this workforce report where basically a big, or big professional society said there, there aren't going to be enough jobs in, in 10 years. Um, so some people are really latching onto that. Some people, there's also, there are a bunch of these big sort of firms out to make money that basically hire doctors and want to minimize cost and reimbursement and uh, run these places. And it's all about like metrics that aren't really about the quality of care you deliver to patients. Um, I've never worked for one, so I I don't really know, but that's about the gist. And so some people swear Mm -hmm. it's that. Um, Other people kind of have seen what emergency medicine has become or perhaps what it always was there was a glory day I think uh at the beginning of covid when it was like oh they're heroes they'll work through anything they don't close like nothing stops mm-hmm. um yeah they'll put their life on the line or do whatever um but that was very short-lived and and people that then rotated saw oh when the hospital's full you see patients in the waiting room and people wait for six hours eight hours a day oh, People can't get into their PCP. So you do primary care. It's not all this glory, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I think the answer, and then another group will say, well, it's because the people that run the residency slots that determine how many spots there are, that has exploded. So there are 3,000 positions now, roughly. But when Jeremy and I were matching 10 years ago, it was much less. It was in the thousand range, 1,500, 1,800. So in 2015, there were like 1,800 spots. Now there's over 3,000. It's because a lot of these for-profit corporate medical groups have opened residencies. So I think it's probably a combination of all of those. But who you talk to, we'll see where everyone else lands on this, you know, may may highlight one of them.
1: Ryan, what do you say? I think an important, important point that you brought up there is not only are these private equity investing groups... Um, who, I mean, this is very much like the ugly side of the corporatization of medicine. It's all about kind of throughput profits, that thing, not about anyone having good outcomes or enjoying their job. Those groups have also been the ones who have pushed for the opening of tons of residencies over the past few years, and so kind of oversaturated the market. And I don't know if this is something that anyone is able to confirm, but the suspicion is that one of the reasons they've been doing this is to increase the number of graduating and practicing ER doctors so that they can pay them less because there is too much supply and lower demand. And so at the same time, I mean, they're cutting hours in the emergency departments that they run across the country while increasing the number of doctors who are fighting for those spots.
2: Another win for capitalism. Fantastic. Jeremy, what say you? Yeah. So one thing I'll say is that the
4: 555 open slots was as of Monday. So we don't know how many of those got filled by this secondary process, the, the mini scramble, the soap process, whatever you want to call it. Um, I, I've heard that a lot of them were filled, which is which is good news. But I still think that the fact that that even number that even happened is just is is a real uh, bellwether. You know, kind of canary in the coal mine for what's going on, because it used to be like, no, they're the Spots are full, and so I think what's happened is there's so many programs with so little track record that people like aren't even applying to a bunch of places because why would they? It's like, oh, here's some program that's been around for two years, could be on probation in a year from now, for all we know. Do they really have a history of like education? Do they really have a commitment to anything other than doing what Ryan just suggested, which is like churning out you know cheap labor in the short term and cheaper labor in the long term? Um, and so I think that. There, it, we'll see how many of these slots are filled, and I suspect a lot of them will be, uh, which will just lead to the another kind of another angle, which I don't think I've heard a lot of people say, which is that this reflects the fact that like no one understands emergency medicine residencies as a whole right now, because like Lauren said, like the spots have doubled, like there's just like these are n- not known quantities, and so like why are you going to apply to some new program in the middle of nowhere uh, that may or may not be able to train you, that may or may not be able to fill a job afterwards? So I think that. Um, the story is not quite yet to be written, but what I think is absolutely terrifying is that when you looked at the the programs that were not filled on Monday, as of Monday, it wasn't necessarily just those 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 groups, those new residencies uh, in the for-profit driven parts of the system. You had like Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit and like not fill its p- spots. You had Jefferson in Philly. You had Duke University, like not having filled their spots in the first round. Like that is bonkers. These are like historically awesome programs. Yeah.
3: Yeah. That but, is me, I think, I think that's because people, you know, right. People think their name will carry them. And, and really like last year, last, like 555 spots is a lot, but last year, I mean, everyone was looking to the match this year. And I know our program was thinking about it as well um, because, you know, we filled last year, we filled this year. It's, it's not a problem here, but we were aware that it could be because last year was a big warning sign. Last year was a big turnaround 2021 like everyone filled it was super competitive 2022 not so much and so I think people thought like well that may be an outlier also our name is so great versus maybe p- taking a little more effort ranking more people or doing some other things and like it's not just all sort of about the name.
2: Let me ask you guys then, with all this being said, um, and it sounds like a bit of uncertainty in the, the field of emergency medicine, if you had a, a relative or a friend, young friend coming to you saying, uh, I applied for surgery, I did not get in, um, it, would you say, hey, consider this; these open spots at, at these really, some of them are pretty well-known places for emergency medicine. Would you guys say that or would you guys say, you know maybe just try to work it out with surgery and see if you can follow up with something in the soap or something like that what would you guys what advice would you guys give
1: best no, i think I mean, is oh go ahead lauren i want to hear what lauren has to say it's better than what i was going to say
2: no no not at all i mean i just
3: you know i'm 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 outspoken i can't help myself um but the you got to follow your passion i think in medicine in this day the way that it is You need to follow whatever your passion is. And there can be multiple avenues to get there. I tried to not be a doctor, despite doing a project on honavirus in the seventh grade and a book report on hepatolenticular degeneration in the fourth grade. Like it, it's it's it, who I am, um, like these like rare diseases and stuff, but I, I tried to avoid it. And so I think if somebody really wants to be a surgeon, it's like, well, why do you want to be a surgeon? What is it that's appealing? And for me, I went into med school thinking I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, but then I realized that like the operating rooms are super cold and I get cold easily. That just wasn't going to work out. But there were other things that I loved. I loved procedures. And so there might be some of those things where, it might make them happy. In emergency medicine, like it's such an enticing residency because you can be skilled to do anything. You can do some primary care. I do addiction medicine as well. Like you can do hospice and palliative. Like there's so many you learn about everything. So you can do so much. So it might be, well, what what do you want to do with surgery? What's appealing? Um and you know, you might be an attractive candidate if you get some of that emergency medicine skill base, so you know how to reject all the consults. Just kidding. Um, but you know, I think that they might, if they're not going to be happy, like there are a lot of problems in emergency medicine. And so if that's not going to get them to their goal, then like, yes, scramble, find a surgical spot if that's what they really want to do.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And that was kind of what I was going to say, not as well, but, um, like emergency medicine the reason we have this issue is because there are some some real problems at play here and obviously i mean the pandemic has kind of highlighted how healthcare in general in this country has a lot of problems um like we talked about boarding the the long wait times people not being able to go to other appointments have have scheduled surgeries that kind of thing and coming to the emergency department and everything is kind of uh like shit shit runs downhill i guess would be the the expression to say here. So for people who aren't actually interested in doing emergency medicine, it makes me pause at least to think of them like taking this time to train in something that they didn't want to do anyway, Mm -hmm. at a time when we are kind of figuring out how to how to deal with this stuff. Um, That that just seems like a recipe for disaster.
2: Let let me ask you this. Um, You know, Lauren had kind of touched on it, but you are a specialist. You're a you know you you study toxicology do you feel like that helps you is that something you would recommend for people going into emergency medicine to find some some specialty in there to to focus on maybe cuz it'll give them a little bit more options in the future in terms of jobs or in terms of job security
1: So I don't know if I can really answer that well. I mean, I think the trend over the past few years, and not even just like recently with with everything else I had mentioned, is kind of towards the additional subspecialty certifications going into fellowships and stuff um, is becoming more and more popular in emergency medicine, even before all of this. Um, And I mean, jobs and uh, employers, like people who have, have additional training, um, but again, if, if you're not really interested, I mean, doing a two year fellowship in med talks, uh, is going to be a lot of work and there's not like a, a lot of money to be made in toxicology. If I'm being honest, there's not a lot of toxicology jobs, at least in kind of like academic healthcare. Um, and I mean, it, I like it, it gives me something else to do. I, I think that having that kind of additional area of training expertise, whatever does help you in your career overall, um, and I, I also do addiction medicine. And so it it does help kind of balance it out. But again, if it's not what you want to do, if you're not really passionate about it, doing all that training for kind of doing a, a hobby career, yeah. might might not lead to the best, best physicians.
2: Yeah, that's no, a really good point. I mean, there are there's so many hurdles and there's so many roadblocks, and there's so much stuff that a pre-med and then medical student has to go through to get to the point where they enter a residency that and I've talked about this before, they don't have a lot of time to just stop and think about whether or not they're doing what they want to do, really, whether or not it's the right thing for them. It's just such a linear path for most of us that we just have to keep like putting our head down and breaking through brick wall after brick wall until we get to where we're going that, you know, most people, if they stop it, they're afraid, at least if they stop and look around and think, am I doing what I really want to do? They'll sink and they'll never get to where they want to be. Um, Maybe this is one of those moments for people in those situations where they need to think about what they really want to do um, when they're doing the match. I think that's probably, I mean, it's probably a little too late by that point, but it, it almost seems like we need to have more checks along the way for people to stop and think about what they want to do. Oh, I should mention to our listeners, uh, Lauren had to drop off. We didn't just like shut off her mic in case you guys are wondering. And that's, um, actually, can I just say like that's, yeah.
4: that's. Lauren just came off a night shift you know she's a attending physician faculty at Bay State Medical Center Uh, she does night shifts you know like the the momentum to like do medicine is one thing and then there's also this whole idea of like we romanticize like really hard parts of this job that aren't so sustainable like you know I do occasional nights Lauren does a lot of nights but like you have to decide if like that's something you're willing to do in the long term like to make the choices like your your earlier question like what would you tell someone applying and it's like my answer to that is actually a little bit different it's like my I ask people, well, what, what kind of problems do you like to solve? Really, because people say, oh, procedures or this or that. But really, it's like, what kind of problems do you like to solve? And if you like to solve, like, I, I think emergency medicine is a cognitive discipline. Like, it's a certain kind of problem you're trying to solve. Like, picking <coughs> out the sick patients is not hard when they're crashing. It's finding the the, the one who is actually going to be in trouble if you don't pick up their pathology. Mm-hmm. Or figuring out how to, which tests to do and not to do. It's a, actually, it's a fascinating cognitive discipline, it's what I always tell people. Um, but yeah, um, but there are sacrifices. And I think that people along the way, like you said, Kave, don't think about it because they're propelled by this sort of momentum of of ambition or by interest. And mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. I wish there was a way that we could actually like get people to stop and like think about wait a minute, how I feel when I'm 25 really how am I gonna feel when I'm 40, 50, or 60? It's right, hard to right. do that.
2: Exactly. <laughs> And, I mean, it's always important to remember for people that you, just because you go down this path.
0: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health
3: insurance. Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com
2: path doesn't mean you can't change at some point. I mean, that's one positive thing about medicine in general, I feel, is that you can at some point, and I hate to use Silicon Valley tech phrases like this, pivot into something else if you need to. It can be done. We see it happen to a lot of our colleagues, and we've seen it happen in the last three years. A lot of people leaving clinical medicine, for example, to go to other places, and then some of them come back and some of them don't. Um, yeah, I think that's really well said. Let me Let me ask you guys, though, you know, um, what recommendations or would you have to maybe fix this for next year? I, I know it's early. I know it's early in the process and digesting what's coming, what's happened and and getting more of the information, especially in regards to who is able to get into these secondary positions. But any thoughts? I mean, look, there's one
4: thing that I'm not sure we can do for next year, but currently there's no way to stop residencies from, from opening more and more seats. In other words, this is being a bigger problem because there is an exemption to the monopoly problem, right? They're allowed to do whatever they want. No one can tell them to stop right now. And there's no downside for these places to keep opening these residencies, um, which is, you know, really a double, a double whammy, right? It's, it's that there's not, there's unfilled slots. And then they're going to have a workforce that has more doctors uh, than actually we might need. Um, and so I, I think that it would be great if um, this was a little bit of a course correction in terms of why don't we let the programs that currently exist establish themselves? Because there are a bunch that really haven't. Uh, mm-hmm. And some are going to be really great. You know, I'm not saying the new programs are all bad. I'm just saying that we need to, I, th- I think we need a little bit of like time to figure out which ones of these are going to be in it for the long haul, which ones are really reliable. Um, So I think that that, that'd be a longer term thing. That's the hardest one to do. Um, But one thing I will say is I think emergency medicine could do a little bit better of a job of marketing what it is we actually do. Like, yes, the show ER in the 90s, like is probably like the reason I went into medical school in the first place. I just wanted to do the Benton slam, you know? um yeah. and uh i want to be carter and and uh or just george clooney in general i actually um, never watched
2: the show so i have no idea you know
4: i could just go down the list but anyway um <laughs> the point is um that you know yes when i went into, into emergency medicine it, it the ethos was like this is where all the critical care is happening like we're gonna save lives we're gonna do like every crazy new thing whether it's you know better sepsis care or freaking crikes or ecmo or whatever it's going to be it was like that that was like the the teens you know like the 2010s yeah and i think that what's happening in em is we certainly we have to learn all that stuff i mean to some extent but i think it's become a much more social em kind of feel uh social medicine kind of feel like this it, it's the best primary care for some people and it, let's embrace that i also i think emergency medicine could be like rebranded like emergency and equity medicine because that's what, and honestly a lot of students these days care about that stuff like the applicant pool is full of people who actually are in it for the right reasons like they're not in it to become the world's next like famous, you know, surgeon or whatever, they're in it because they actually want to help their communities. And EM is a great place for that. So I'd say, you know, we could um, broaden, get get emergency medicine outside of emergency departments, like, you know, into, into mm-hmm. communities. It's a, it's a cognitive discipline that can be practiced anywhere. And we should embrace that part of our, of our field and bring in people who care
1: about, you know, changing their
4: communities, not just when they're crashing.
2: Oh, yeah. That's beautifully said.
1: Yeah. I have to agree. I mean, I if I had any answers to this I would probably be in making a lot of money or something. Um but like the first thing that came came to mind is, is exactly what Jeremy said. Like we have too many spots. Um some of these programs I mean maybe we should consider whether they actually should exist anymore um and kind of work work with what we have. But to the other thing I mean not to have sounded super negative earlier about problems with the healthcare system in America I think it is really cool one of the my favorite things about my job is that I can be people's primary care provider I can work with things like homelessness addiction all of these things that are kind of really there's nowhere else in healthcare for for people to go a lot of the time Um, And I mean, I derive a lot of pleasure from that. That gives me a lot of work satisfaction, too. So even though I guess those are like systemic issues, being able to do something about it and kind of being the one who's there is a really cool thing. And I think that that is the future of emergency medicine is going to be expanding our scope. It's not just going to be like acute emergencies, uh, but a lot of a lot of other kind of like less acute, acute type of presentations as well. Um, and the social medicine, the the equity, all of that stuff as well is going to be a big thing. But if people are interested, also just telling people what we do. I mean, emergency medicine isn't just ER docs. I mean, dealing with like gunshot wounds and, and broken bones and stuff. Um, I mean, there's so much more, all of the different kind of subspecialties. Like I do med talks. So, I mean, I can do inpatient medicine. I can do outpatient medicine. Um, you can work for a poison center. You can work for a pharmaceutical company, all of this stuff. And there's so many other things, ultrasound, sports medicine, you name it. Yeah. But so there's so much more to it. And people like if you have a passion, if you have a hobby, I mean, you can also get paid to do a lot of this stuff. And like, I don't think people realize that. I mean, it sounds rough to say that I also worked an overnight shift last night. It was very busy for St. Patrick's Day. But I mean, (laughs) my my Tuesday morning is like a Saturday. I, I can go do my grocery shopping when nobody else is out um so shift work may not be for everybody but it is also kind of a perk in its own right um so there is a lot more here and i think the negatives are what people tend to focus on that that's human nature and that's what gets the most attention but this this hopefully in the long run will be a positive thing and i'm encouraged by the fact that other specialties in recent years have had kind of very similar workplace uh predictions and and problems and particularly i mean like Anesthesia, radiology come to mind, and and both of those groups have overcome kind of doom and gloom uh, projections, and and seem to be flourishing. So I hope that emergency medicine can follow suit.
2: Yeah, and and we have a lot of young listeners here somehow, and uh, <laughs> this is good for them to hear, uh, and and hopefully this helps expose uh, some people to that may not know all the details about emergency medicine about. Some other aspects of it that they haven't seen on TV. Um, all right, let's let's go to some listener questions. I solicited questions for this episode uh, on Twitter. Uh, let's start with Gloria hashtag Vax hashtag Mask meal at Gloria Miel M I E L E. I hope I'm saying that great. Is it Miele? I'm sorry. I apologize. How can we get more EM docs comfortable prescribing boop, especially now that the barrier of the X waiver is removed? I think this one's for you, Ryan. Can you tell people what boop is um, and the X waiver is?
1: Yeah, so buop or buprenorphine is, I mean, one of the best, most evidence-based medicines to treat opioid use disorder or opioid addiction, um, treat withdrawal, it can also be used for other things, especially like pain. But I think this question is getting to the treatment of substance use. And the federal government finally, after many decades, uh, got rid of a lot of these archaic and non scientific restrictions on it. And so everyone can now prescribe it, which is a big deal, because for a long time, you had to go through uh, extensive, costly, uh, non-fun training to to be able to do this, and it was really just an an extra burden on probably already overworked and stressed physicians and and providers. Um, the question is, will people want to prescribe it now? Uh, I I have a lot of reservations because I mean I think the biggest reason people didn't want to go through that was because they just didn't want to prescribe it after all. Um, but I am hopeful and. I don't know that there is a single answer for how to do this, but I am going to keep beating beating this dead horse with a stick um, and anyone who's not prescribing buprenorphine with a stick as well until we can do that. Uh, But I think over time, I mean, normalizing this, showing people that it's easy, that it's safe, that it really makes a difference. I mean, honestly, one of the most satisfying parts of my job to get back to kind of our other discussion is being able to, to treat people with substance use and addiction. And I mean, not everybody wants to go on buprenorphine, so that, that shouldn't be like the only thing. But seeing kind of the way that treatment and just being being treated for once at all can make such a big difference in people's lives uh, is really rewarding. And I mean, I have not been practicing for for a long time, but I very clearly remember for probably the majority of my career still, the the main thing was you see someone after an overdose, you watch them for a little bit and send them back out. And when I was in residency, kind of at the peak of our weird fentanyl analogs overdose crisis in Appalachia, uh, we were getting people, I mean, two, three times overdosing in my 10 hour shifts and being able to actually oh, wow. give someone medicine, do something about it is, is really cool that we, we've we come so far in just a few years. So I hope people will catch up. I, I think the doing it really like speaks for itself, so to sort of speak.
2: Yeah, yeah. J- Jeremy, let me ask you this one. This is a question from Amitriptyline. <laughs> it's a pretty funny one. Amitriptyline, like the like the medicine, but Amitriptyline, like an action. At call me maybe, call me maybe, but with a K. Is there a way to help emergency medicine physicians feel more comfortable discharging patients with SI? I'm assuming suicidal ideation. To community resources instead of doing a state law permissible emergency hold and sending to an inpatient psych hospital. This it's a lot longer. I'm sorry, I'm just gonna cut it because it's like a it's a three-parter um question, but let's let's just do that part of it, uh, Jeremy. Sure. Um the answer is
4: it's complicated. Uh it, it really depends on uh both the state you're in and also the judgment of the clinician who's treating that patient. Um if if a patient is really deemed to be a threat to themselves and possibly others, uh the inpatient level of care is what's required. And most all states, you know, allow um treating clinicians to to make that determination, um, and even if it's not what the patient, you know, really wants at that moment. Um the the question, but there is some gray area, and there's certainly been a lot of study about like which patients who come to the ER <coughs> with suicidal thoughts are safe to actually send home to outpatient resources, as the question asks, because not every single patient who comes to an emergency department and says something that raises a flag for suicidal thoughts or suicidal ideation, as we as we call it, um, or intent, not every single one of those patients actually um, needs to be admitted to an inpatient level of care, either um, against their will or in in accordance to their will. Uh some don't and there's been a lot of research on that. And and the the literature is pretty clear on this, which is that we do we in the ER do a pretty good job of sorting out sorting that out. It's very very unusual that we discharge somebody who um who then in, a, in the short term uh, has like a suicidal event and they complete suicide. We're we're pretty good at that um both w- alone and also in conjunction with our psychiatric uh specialty colleagues at times. Um But I think that it could be, it would be nice (laughs) if uh, we didn't have to do as many, uh, if there was some sort of nuance or gray area that it was like something, and there are like what we call partial programs. These are like, well, you're going to go every day, but you're not going to be, you know, in the inpatient level, Um, there's different resources. So I I think that the real issue is that the continuum of care um, exists, but it's just, it's the the gradations within the continuum are a little bit uh, too far apart. And I think that may be what 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 the uh, question is getting at.
2: Yeah, I there was a, a number of questions regarding this um, sent to me when I solicited or something around this about uh, psychiatric management in the emergency room. One of them, somebody sent me uh, an article, basically, in New Hampshire has been ordered to phase out. So let me pull it up. New Hampshire was ordered to phase out practice of keeping psychiatric patients in emergency rooms where they can be boarded for extended periods until something opens up, like a a hospital bed opens up somewhere as a civil rights issue for that person, Um, which I I could see, I could see it being a problem. But it's also, I feel like, emergency room doctors are probably placed in a really tough situation a lot. Cause I mean, what options do they have? I'm sure, I'm assuming there's a lot of concern for liability that emergency room doctors feel. And in fact, I mean, I got, I think I love about emergency room doctors is because you guys do such a good job taking care of so many patients all the time, but there are going to be situations where something bad happens to a patient. You send home a patient that's with what seems like reflux, all the tests, show reflux or nothing's going on with the heart, everything you do seems okay, but they go home and there is always a chance that something bad could happen to that patient. And there is always, I feel like this pressure in that regards for you guys. How much of that do you guys actually feel at this point in your careers? You've been doing it for long enough. Do you still feel it every shift or do some point learn to manage it?
4: So the psych boarding thing is one question and that is a major major problem. I don't know exactly what's going on in New Hampshire, but certainly the problem of a patient who's clearly needs inpatient level of psychiatric care um uh, and then not having a place to go um because our hospital our psychiatric unit is full and Every single unit in the area is full, and they have to get a COVID test that's negative or whatever it is. There's something. The boarding has been terrible, and that's dangerous for everybody. It takes up hospital resources. It's bad for the patients. Like the last thing a patient who's having, uh, you know, a crisis, a crisis needs is to be stuck in an ER for <clears throat> days, which literally happens. And um, it's it's if there's a solution to that problem. I am all for it. Um, I don't think this I don't think the solution is to pretend that those patients don't need inpatient level of care and just street them, you know turf them out but I think that um, it's it's bad for them and bad for everybody um that they're literally stuck in those ERs. I think that's we got to fix that. Uh, in terms of the other question I'd love to know what Ryan thinks as well. Um, yeah, you do sort of end up um there's a sort of uh, this what's <laughs> steely resolve, you know this sort of thick skin you get like I'm discharging a patient and i really hope that nothing happens to them in, in the near term um you know most of the time when we do that um it's because we've we've really put them into a risk category that's as low as we can get for that problem and that admitting them to the hospital will not change anything right so like it just it's it, it's um it, we're not saying you don't have anything we're saying look admitting you to the hospital hospital right now will not change um you know how well you do yeah, obviously um the, the screw up is when, you know, they clearly are having a heart attack and you pretend not to see it or something, which I don't know why that happened, but, you know, it, it, that's different than, look, one out of every 500 patients who we look to see if they have a heart attack and they don't, will go home and, and in a month we'll have one, uh, you know, admitting 499 of those people to catch that one actually does more harm than good to the to the population. So and those patients to- too.
2: Those patients going to get unnecessary tests yeah, things yeah, are going to happen harmful. to them. Yeah, it's harmful.
4: And um and so you have to rely on this is what I was saying before. Emergency medicine is a cognitive discipline. You have to rely on the fact that you are doing the best thing for that patient and that doesn't mean you're perfect. It means that you've put them into a uh, a risk categorization that says Damn, the best thing for this person is 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 actually to send them home. Do I occasionally wake up thinking, wait a second, I wonder how that patient's doing? Uh, Yeah, I do. And I'll call a patient or I'll email a patient if that happens. Really unusual. But um, yeah, I don't know. Ryan, how do you feel about it?
1: Yeah, I have to agree with all of that. And I think both of these issues, they're both of these questions that you brought up kind of are not really a unique or problematic thing for emergency medicine, in my mind, at least. I mean, I think these are kind of systemic issues and really show the fact that, There is a future here. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities for people in emergency medicine. If you are interested in psychiatric care, if you are interested in policy, if you are interested in palliative things, I mean, those are going to be the future here. Um, But managing risk is always difficult. I mean, I think at the end of the day, like what I like most about my job is that I get to meet, I mean, like 30 people in a shift or something and have conversations with total strangers um, who are having a really bad day. And so it is kind of about that connection. And I think we use the phrase um, like shared decision-making a lot. I don't, I don't even know if that phrase really has any meaning anymore when I use it. But in kind of talking to people, you can explain to people what's going on. You can give them, I mean, comfort. You can give them resources. You can help them know know what is next. Not everyone needs to be admitted to the hospital. I would never want to be admitted to a hospital, honestly. Um, but yeah, like these these are really kind of future future directions. Um, I mean, I think the past few years have have made major changes in kind of the way that we do disposition patients from the emergency department, uh, doing things that I've never really been able to do before sending people home with like monitoring with, with home health care with with oxygen, all of this stuff, so they can get kind of the what they actually need without being trapped in a, a hospital bed all day with all the the risks that come with that. Um, so in in my mind, these are, are cool conversations to be having and are interesting conversations and I think are not really like problems as so much as uh, things that, that we can talk about and, and work on, not not to Ooh. sound really che- cheesy.
2: Cool questions. I like that. <laughs> that's great. That's, that's Those are very good answers. Thank you both. And Jeremy, thank you for taking that mess of a question I laid upon you and carefully parsing it into two pieces for us. Um, I appreciate that. Um, Let's do one more question. And that's from Karen Percy at Karen Percy. If you haven't already done this, I would ask what can be done to better protect the physical safety of emergency medicine doctors and nurses? And what are the best known methods of this in some hospitals?
1: Ryan, why don't we start with you? Yeah. Well, hi, Karen. Um, (laughs) But uh, that's a good question. And that is something that, that we deal with every day. Uh, I myself have been assaulted more times than than I can count by my patients. Um, But I think that is a very minuscule percentage of my encounters uh, being knowing that these people are like in crisis and stuff makes a difference here. This isn't like people are coming in maliciously and doing things. But I think going forward, we have to make sure that people want to do this, that people feel safe doing this um and so we've seen in recent years like gun violence is a big problem for emergency departments for hospitals so, uh addressing that making sure that that we actually have safety plans in place um but again at the end of the day the the corporatization of healthcare has kind of incentivized protecting the the business rather than protecting the employees um as well as the patients honestly um this is this isn't good for patients either but so like in, in terms of some of the situations I've been involved in, it's been very hard to get anything done to to kind of, if I was on the street and someone came up and did this to me, it would, it would be very easy. There would be no questions. Um, so yeah. I, I don't think I answered the question in any way. But again, it is just uh, emergency medicine, as Jeremy said, it is very cognitive in terms of the work that we do, but also the fact that we have to think about all of the the systemic sy- systemic issues. Um, the systems in place, all of these hierarchical structures, the the status quo. Um, I mean, everything comes into play. And again, if if I was smarter, if I had a lot of answers, I'd probably be in a nice mahogany paneled office somewhere making a bunch of money. You're
2: so smart. Stop it. Stop it. And handsome. And you've lost weight. I can tell. By the way, I can I can I saw that on the video. Jeremy, what what do you, what say you?
4: So I think that. Uh you're a genius you you have a you have an arc here you know we started with Mm -hmm. people coming into the field and now we're Mm -hmm. ending with something that makes me think about why people leave the field Mm -hmm. it's all my plan it's all my plan um because really there are a lot of reasons why people leave and burnout and all that stuff and some of that stuff is uh we could talk about another time but one problem with the workplace violence situation is that er doctors or er clinicians nurses pa's everybody you know um, they don't feel valued and protected. And you can, people can really tolerate a lot if they feel like that someone has their back, you know, that someone cares about them actually. And, and and that you have a family at work. And, um, if, if, if I so much as say the wrong thing to a patient and it was totally unintentional, like I just said, like, they don't like the way I said it. I could end up in meetings for days and days trying to explain that I'm sorry that I didn't mean to say it like that or you misheard it or misinterpreted it or whatever. Or if I did screw up, I'm just saying I'm sorry. Um, uh, And if I get attacked at work, then there's no meeting. The patient doesn't have any consequence. You know, they're not going to get arrested or anything like that. You know, there's no like, uh, in fact, if I get attacked, the most likely thing is someone's going to say, well, you should really work on your verbal deescalation techniques, Dr. Faust, or, uh, gee, maybe, um, you know, you should deal with your, that's very stressful. Here's a wellness module to do, you know, in other words, like we're yeah. the victims yeah. when we are the victim <laughs> and, right, uh, right. And, and then, and then instead of someone Feeling like they've got your back you know yeah. and i think that that would be that would be a big step in the right direction it would be the sense of like um that you had the sense that like you're you're valued you're valued yeah um you know i trained in new york um at Elmer's hospital um those those docs have been around that er for a long long time and the reason that that's the case actually is leadership they care they take care of each other they look after each other and um, that is what makes that place survive. Um, and I give them all kinds of credit for that. So I think that that would be, and look, uh, yeah, I mean, look, that's not going to fix gun violence. Let's be very honest. Um, yeah, yeah. But like just a little like incidental things, you know, like, um, you know, yeah, the customer is always right, but that doesn't mean that there's no um, injury kind of moral injury to the
2: work. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd like to see, I'd like to see uh, that accentuated. That's really well said, both of you guys. That's really important. Actually, it's it's interesting. It brings to mind. I was looking through a chart recently, and I saw a colleague's email interaction with a patient, and I understand how frustrating it can be as a patient. Personally, I I get that. There was this interaction I saw, though, where the patient was being mean in the email and being a little bit uh, abusive to the, the doctor on the other end of the email, and the gist of it came down to them being angry about not getting an answer for a problem soon enough. From what I could tell, things were being done in a pretty timely fashion. But what the doctor wrote in response, I thought was pretty brilliant. The doctor wrote back, hello, yes, I am aware of this. I am working on this. But please be please keep in mind that there is a human person on the other end of this email And, you know, basically to remind them in a very, I thought, gentle way, like, you know, these are doctors who are stressed too, who are working hard and can get moral injury as along with physical injury in the the workplace too, you know, and, and it's something that, you know, we, there is a hierarchy and there is, you know, doctors are in a special place, but still it doesn't mean that they're impervious to, to, to injury, either physical or emotional. So I thought that was a really, um, I thought those were a really interesting thing I saw. And I, and I hope people say that more often if they need to. I think doctors should. Doctors should be able to, to say that. Um, okay. Thank you for those questions. Those are fantastic questions. Uh, and it reminds me that I am now starting to look through the email again. So if you do have topics or questions that you want to, to hear on the show or you want addressed, you can email me at hopquestions at gmail.com. If you're on Twitter, you can reach out to me there at the House of Pod. Guys, Let's let's get some plugs in. First of all, thank Lauren uh, who had to run. Thank thank you Lauren for for coming on. Uh, Ryan, where can people find you?
1: Um, I guess come check out check me out on YouTube. youtube.com dot slash at Ryan Um, but I'm also on Twitter at Ryan Marino.
2: I'm gonna watch your YouTube so much, man. In a weird way, just so you know. Um, Jeremy, what about yourself?
4: Uh, Lauren Westerfer is at uh, foamcast.org she is me we are the same person (laughs) Um, so you could follow Lauren's podcast there and I'm still on that podcast a lot of times and she's also on Twitter Uh, best place to find me is on my newsletter Substack .substack insidemedicine.substack.com I'm also on Twitter at Jeremy Faust and I just want to say one more thing about emergency medicine which is that we are still the only field with no prior authorization so I want to with all the doom and gloom You know, and if you're a morning person, then you can work a morning shift. And if you're a night person, you can work the 3 to 11. If you're a night owl, you can work the overnights and and work fewer hours for full time. There are still things in EM that I love, love, love. I love my job. I think it's the most ethical field in the world. I wouldn't change it. I just don't want it to be uh, ruined.
2: Fantastic. Let's get the best people
4: in. Let's get the best people.
2: You guys rock. Read Jeremy's uh, substack. And please check out Ryan's uh, YouTube channel. Uh, Follow us at The House of Pod. And if you haven't already, please rate and review this show at uh, iTunes. And uh, tell all your friends while you're at it. Just do that. Uh, Thank you guys so much. Thank you. (laughs)